Hello and welcome. If you are looking for the leads of the House Party film series, you are sorely mistaken. This is Hitting Play. We would like to welcome you to the first, the premiere, the pilot episode of the Hitting Play podcast, a show where we will dissect, uh, examine, discuss episodes of shows, maybe movies, and I guess uh, anything you can hit play to. I am... Scott, I will be your co-host and moderator for the night. Uh, Joining me is girl genius Lily. Oh, gee, thank you. Quite flattering. And the man who will one day have in his possession every copy of Justice League, Sean. Yes, here's hoping. Thank you. So, with this being our pilot episode what better way to kick things off than to review a pilot episode something that all three of us are familiar with i don't know if this will always be the case for us but uh we have reviewed an episode entitled space pilot 3000 the pilot of the great long-running show futurama yes it is quite fine the finest piece of literature ever written in my opinion the script (laughs) <laughs> the script and and the um the, the cartoon series in, in general. I think we should start, um, if I can propose. Where was everyone when this episode do you remember where you were when this episode was, was broadcast? In uh I believe it was April of or March, excuse me, of nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, I have that written down. March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety nine was the original air date. Yes, that is true. Where was everyone with this with this aired? Okay, so I'll start. Um, yes. because mine's quite a lengthy story. Uh, I was yes. actually two years old. Okay. And what? That, that was that was it. <laughs> so do you remember where you were when you watched this for the yeah, first time? Yeah, answer the question. Please. Uh, I don't remember anything at all from when I was two years old. I probably wasn't watching Futurama at two. I was probably chewing on some toy of mine. Okay. Well, at least your answer is honest. Scott, do you remember where you were when this came on? I was chewing on a toy of mine as well. Uh, <laughs> no, I was uh, I was in high school. I think I was a freshman in high school when this came, and I was very much looking forward to it. I knew that there were reports that Matt Groening had another show in the works, a sci-fi show, and I remember the promo of... Professor Fonsworth uh, falling asleep in front of a large telescope. That was all they showed. So I was very intrigued, very much looking forward to it. And I made sure I was right in front of the television uh, when it aired. That's very similar to my experience with Futurama. Um, I was 21 years old when it came on. And to my parents' grand embarrassment, I was also waiting in front of the TV for this to come on at 21. But you were drinking, right? I probably, yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> um, and I, I remember seeing Futurama hearing about first in the Rolling Stone magazine. had a big article, it might have been a cover, I'm not quite sure, on um, Futurama and the spinoff from The Simpsons, or say. So it looked very intriguing, and I liked the concept, and I liked The Simpsons, so it was uh, definitely a match made in space and heaven. Very nice. Yes. 
I was the only one out of my group of friends to uh, actually enjoy this show. Some friends of mine would not even give it a chance because they felt as though uh, Bender was trying to be Homer, and they wouldn't have it. Did they work for the Fox Corporation by any chance? <laughs> they did not. Because <laughs> they seemed to have the same opinion of Futurama. <laughs> After canceling about 16 times, that was horrible, but we'll get into that, I'm sure, as we go down the line of these episodes. Yeah. All right, so let's start from the very beginning of the show. We have the opening scene. Uh, it takes place, as the title card says, uh, December 31st, 1999. Now, I don't know about you guys. When I went back and looked, I thought this aired around December 1999. You know, I know it aired before December and actually before July 1999. And the reason I know that is, um, and I don't want to do any spoilers, but... There was something that was changed in subsequent uh, airings of this pilot episode that they had to change in, that was referenced in the pilot that they had to change because of tragedy that happened in July 1999. Okay. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But So it was, for some reason, a spring start for this show. I'm not sure why Fox did it that way, but maybe that's when it was ready. I don't know. So really, this actually began in the future as well. Sure, yes, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Very near future. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a number of months in the future. And literally, it was a very scary time back then. You were only two. Yeah. <laughs> so you probably don't recall preparing for Y2K. Oh, um, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was absolutely terrified of that and the Cookie Monster. No, uh, Cookie Monster came out to be more terrifying than Y2K was, but... That was on everyone's mind. You probably remember that, Scott, right? I do. Okay. Everyone was all freaked out about what was going to happen on January 1st, 2000 with the computer systems. Oh, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> One yen bug. And so this was kind of on everyone's mind. I think probably even back in, in March of 1999, the whole year was pretty much Y2K, Y2K, and nothing happened of significance. So that's a big dud. I just wanted to also mention that this pilot episode and many other episodes were written by uh, David X. Cohen. I believe he might have been credited as David S. Cohen while he was on The Simpsons. I think that was a um, Writer's Guild requirement. Nobody can have the same name. So he came up with the uh, middle initial X, which really doesn't mean anything. Uh, kind of like Michael J. Fox, because there was already a Michael Fox in the in the Actors Guild. Yes. That's a little bit of trivia for you, for you family uh, ties. Fr- Do they gather together and go on quests? <laughs> Michael, uh, David S. No, Cohen, Michael. I'm, the I'm, Guild? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Maybe. They go on quests to get more money. There you go. Wow. Bigger paychecks. So we start with uh, a nice little nod to what's going to happen in the future as Fry is... Uh, in control of a spaceship going towards Saturn in a game called Monkey Fracas Jr. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. And it is uh, 11.36 p.m. He's at Panucci's Pizza, and he has to bring a pizza to a cryo lab. Uh, he later finds out it is addressed to I.C. Wiener. <laughs> and, uh, and that never gets old. No, never. Stands a test of time, that, that joke. Um <laughs> Oh, before that, he is broken up with by his girlfriend, uh, Michelle, who is... Oh, uh, yes. She's here voiced by Kath Susie, who's done a ton of voiceover work, but uh, later on, I believe Michelle was played by Sarah Silverman. Yes, that is correct. And later episodes of Futurama, the great Sarah Silverman. 
Also, just another piece of trivia is that I see Wiener, his address is 405-something. It's kind of obscured by Fry's hand, I believe. Huh. David X. Cohen's parents live at 405-something. So he put that in there as a, I guess, a tribute to his parents, is that, I guess. Is that the name of the road is something? Something Road? No, I don't oh, think so. Okay. I don't think oh, so. I thought it was 405-something Road. Whatever it is, I don't think he wanted his parents' full address on national television. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. I, I think uh, one other thing, uh, a little did you know this sort of thing, is that on the pizza box um, that for the delivery, there was a, it showed the, the traditional pizza box of the Italian guy putting his fingers together, like, oh, you know, you're going to like this sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, it says, do not tip the delivery boy uh, on uh, the uh, pizza box cover, which is pretty, shows uh, Fry's probably reluctance to become a delivery boy ever again. Right. Anytime. At time frame. Wow, you guys are definitely analyzing this. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we go to a scene where the whole world, for some reason, the whole world is counting down midnight. Um, yeah, that's, uh, apparently it's the time, same time zone in every uh, continent on the planet. It's, cause it's dark everywhere when they're doing it. Yeah, Except and for it's... the shot of the Earth. Yeah, of course. Where but, it is you know, light Egypt and France and then there's some islands, right? They did it, like, in the Pacific. I have it written down here. Uh, so, we see New York for the number 10. We see Paris for the word Neuf. Pardon my French. Then for 8, we were supposed to, in the original script, get a shot of the Mir space station, where they say Vosem. I just did some research to make sure Mir was actually in the sky at the time. For those of you who want to know, Mir was uh, launched February 20th, 1986, and returned to Earth March 23rd, 2001. So that would have been fine. It was changed to air auto at Vatican City, where the Pope holds a sign to the crowd. Uh, we then get the Great Pyramid, where they say Sava, the Parthenon, Exi, the Great Wall of China, Wu, the Taj Mahal, Char, a Maasai camp, where they say Thatu. In either Ma or Maasai, however, whatever you want to speak. Uh, Tokyo was Ni, and then finally the whole Earth, Fry falls backwards, and something interesting is in there. Uh, yes, there is a frame in... Uh, this really shows how much detail-oriented and far-reaching the, um, the writers of the show really were. They planned it out quite a bit ahead of time, which is very impressive to me, because you see a lot of shows that just kind of go off the... They see their pants and don't know season from season what's going to happen. But if you look at one of the frames, there is a shadow of a future character that actually uh, helps in getting uh, Fry trapped in the cryogenic tube. And that would be Nibbler. I wasn't going to say that yet, but okay. okay yes, Nibbler. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can see his, uh, his eye stalk, I guess you would call it. And people have, you know, right away I think people are saying, oh my goodness, you know, it's... What's what's that? It's Nibbler. It's but and then they did confirm it. That actually was what happened. Is this a good a good time for me to go off my my little rant now? Sure, whatever. Oh. Can, can I go off on a rant? Okay, please do. Please. I have and we should have said a disclaimer at the beginning of the show that if you haven't watched Futurama, where this is going to be spoilers, and it's been out for sixteen years, so please just watch Futurama. On. It's on Netflix. It's on yeah. DVD. Yes, if you haven't so, seen this episode, pause this podcast. Turn on Netflix, maybe search on YouTube, do a little digging, watch the first episode, and then replay. Right, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, sh well, shut up your device. Don't pause the podcast. Come on. Just restart it yeah. and, and after you watch it in 21 minutes, okay? Be reasonable. So, and we also know, for anyone's watching and possibly commenting on this, that this is a fictional cartoon 
but the purpose is really to uh, you know analyze it in a way that you know it as serious as possible while having fun. So this isn't what my rant. As I go off my rant, just keep that in mind. My rant, and this is a rant I had since I watched this for the first time, is about applied cryogenics, the company, the method of which Fry was frozen, and also the time jump into the future. And feel free to jump in any either of you guys if you want to comment or whatnot. I'm very um, interested first, in hearing this, so I will not be jumping in. Okay. First of all, <laughs> Applied Cryogenics. Horrible company. First of all, <laughs> they have a cryogenics company with cryogenic tubes on a, at least, I'm guessing it's 20 floors plus. That's where they, they have their infrastructure of cryogenic freezing technology in a high-rise building in New York City. Of course, on the door, an in-joke is that there's a sign that says, you know, no power outages since 1990, and it has seven taped up, basically showing that uh, there is a lot of power outages, and they have to keep on replacing the, the number. So another pet peeve when I was watching this is that, and maybe this has to do with Nibblers, what he did to get Fry trapped in the tube, but Fry can walk right into this building, the lobby of this building, first of all, New York City, at 11.45 or so on New Year's Eve. And not only do that, but go right up to the, this building's, this office's main entrance and walk in without any kind of security or anything like that. If I was a frozen corpse there, I'd be quite upset that there was that much access to my remains <laughs> um, well, at any one time. Well, I think the idea is that it's not a corpse yet. It well, will be. <laughs> well, cryogenic freezing is mostly for people who have passed away let's be honest, and, and they preserve their body for future reanimation down the road, okay? Yes. But, okay, let's just say someone decided to freeze himself because they wanted to wake up in the future. I still would feel pretty violated if I knew someone was wandering in, a pizza delivery boy, you know, any time they wanted to in the middle of the night to mess around with equipment, okay? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So two big strikes against the company right there. <laughs> Third, the employees. Fry falls into a cryogenic chamber that is open, it's number 40, so they have quite a few. I don't know if you know, so that has a number on yeah. it, number 40. Quite a few cryogenic chambers in this office building, which doesn't make any sense in the first place. Most of the time, again, you think of cryogenic facilities, it would be underground or in a warehouse somewhere, somewhere that's secure and safe. Right, right. Not, not in a high-rise building. Anyway, so he falls into this thing, gets locked in, okay? No employee notices that this tube that was previously unoccupied now has a person in it, and there's no record of who should be in this cryogenic tube. Uh, I, I'm Again, I can only assume that Nibbler possibly changed records. I, I baffled by that, that no one would ever notice that there was this unidentified person occupying one of their tubes. Okay, so that goes on to applied cryogenics. Let's just assume that there was some Nibbler intervention there, and it's just a horrible company. Sure. <laughs> my main thrust of my rant here is the scene which we're getting to, where Fry is in the tube, you see the outside world change, spinning, you know, the sun and the moon spin very quickly. Mm -hmm. There is the fall of civilization by an alien attack. Okay, and it just doesn't happen to break down the cryogenic freezing building. Exactly. (laughs) There are castles and trees outside the window. I double-checked this to make sure it was actually a window and not just, you know, Fry's uh, tube we saw. We saw a window the entire time. 
medieval civilization arises, which then gets torn down by aliens over a thousand years. Then the other civilization arises around it. So they expect us to believe that this one building, possibly, upheld and stayed that entire thousand-year period during this calamity that was going on outside without any damage to the cryogenic building or the cryogenic tubes. I do not buy it, sir. (laughs) I am... Wait, that really turned me off. Maybe there's cryogenicception, where the building is actually sealed inside of a cryogenic tube. No, I don't see any evidence of that. And it's actually a different building. I mean, you could say, yeah, well, maybe they move the tubes around. But why would you put it back in a high-rise building, even if you did move it for a short period of time, for safekeeping? It doesn't make any sense. Why not store it? I think it would have been better off... When they first made this pilot episode, I know they wanted to have that effect of time moving on and seeing things in the background, you know, progressing and, and falling. I think it could have been done in a way um, where Fry is in a secure underground facility or a cavern or a warehouse that, you know, you know and you could see, okay, this place isn't going to get damaged by what happened to the fall of civilization a couple times. That really always bothered me about this pilot episode, that they would actually have us perceive that this would actually work out. And also, you know, <laughs> think of power outages. And how was... Do we have any opinions on how this freezing method took place? It seems like it was just like a flash freeze and yeah. that there was no further power requirements to the cryotubes. Is everyone in agreement of that, pretty yeah. much? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm just, Which I could buy. Uh, just, going, just going back to your point just before this one if i may the spaceships which we were to believe are aliens that destroy civilization except for the building that fry was in yeah well it turns out that we find out much later i think uh let's see when did this come out i think i know what you're gonna say yeah, yeah. was that 2007 or well the 2007 the the made for dvd futurama movie the first of four that came out bender's big score it is later revealed or retconned that it was actually bender leading those uh, UFOs that destroyed uh, New New York, or, I'm sorry, Old New York. Granted, okay. And uh, that was their way of getting around it. So you could say, well, if Bender, in his wanton, not certainly not calculated uh, act of destruction, if he accidentally hit that building, then maybe uh, that sends a ripple in time. Maybe Fry doesn't live, Fry doesn't discover Bender, Bender goes ahead with his booth-assisted suicide, and he disappears entirely. I understand that, but I, I still have to say it was a foolish decision. Well, for the company, first of all, and I think it would have, it could have easily made that same effect of uh, Fry being in a cryogenic tube somewhere secure without asking all these, these questions and me going on this rant. There was a movie <laughs> that actually did it a lot better. Um, it was a Mel Gibson movie. Was it that Forever Young movie? Oh, era? Braveheart. Ever... No, it wasn't Braveheart. That is... <laughs> <laughs> There's no Cryogenic Chambers in Braveheart. I think it was Forever Young. Anybody see that movie? Yeah, it was, it was a sequel TBS. to Braveheart. It was not a sequel to Braveheart. <laughs> it was... Mel Gibson was frozen in a, a government experiment in 1945 or so. And then, you know, because his wife or his, his fiance was in a coma and he wanted to be frozen to wake up in a few years when she was out of the coma. And basically what happened in this movie was that the tube was, there was a fire and the tube was misplaced. They thought it was destroyed and it was really in a warehouse. And these two kids in 1990 something, you know, thawed him out basically. I think something like that personally would have been a better fit for me 
than what they did. That's all I'm going to say. There was talk, I believe, in the original script that Fry was somehow going to be a soldier, but that's I never saw that. I heard that talked about, I think, on one of the commentaries, but no one ever, ever seemed to have a real answer about that. But yeah, certainly that could have been uh, a better way of doing it. I think the accent aspect of it was funny, or the not the proposed accident, the pretend accident was funny, and I think they just could have done it where the thing was misplaced and then it was found or something like that. And we'll go on to that in a few minutes when we talk about when it gets to the future. Hey, so. and, uh, and congratulations to Applied Cryogenics and Lowbrow Beer for uh, surviving a thousand years and being in business that long. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> I think they're the only two. I don't think, see, that's another thing I don't believe is as plausible as Applied Cryogenics would last that long, but. I, I, I would want to be frozen, I think. If, if I could choose something that would happen to me at the end of my life, I would definitely want to be frozen. Because, you know, they'd come out with the iPhone 700 and it would be as big as a car. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Of course, in the, we find out much, much later in the Futurama world that uh, there is still an iPhone, right? But I believe it's EYE. <laughs> yeah, and it that's one of my favorite episodes. It's in, actually inserted into the eyeball, so I don't know if it's yeah. that great. It's great. You know, the that's next Google Glass. So. <laughs> yeah. um, the next Microsoft Hollow lens. Whatever it's, yeah. yeah, there you go. So um, then we see Fry wake up. He looks out the window. He he sees uh, what is uh, new New York. Of course, we're not really given a, an explanation of how uh, his building was able to stay above ground and become part of new New York from old New York. It seems to be one of the only few structures to do so. Anyway, we're given what was, what still is, I think, one of the most amazing opening sequences uh, to an animated television show. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think you were mentioning, Scott, how long it took him to do that, just that sequence, if I'm, or the frames. It, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it took, uh, I believe it's Rough Draft uh, is the animation studio, that it took uh, an hour to render one frame. Oh my god. In, uh, you know, 1998, 1999, whenever this was made. I mean, yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. And we have the cartoons at the end of when the Planet Express ship hits the billboard. And that, I think it changes pretty much every episode. Pretty much, um, yeah. Shows an old cartoon from the 30s or 40s. This one was called A Little Buck Cheezer. Mm-hmm. Um, made in 1937, for those who are paying attention. Did you happen to look up what that yeah. episode was about? No, I didn't. Okay, well, I got the description. It was a mouse named Little Buck Cheezer and his friends, and this is inspired by Buck Rogers. They build a rocket ship and fly to the moon, presuming, I guess, that the moon is made of cheese. So... Uh, that was uh, a reference to Buck Rogers in the 25th century. So about oh, okay. spaceships and, you know, future time travel, so I can see why it was chosen. And for those of you who did not notice that, <laughs> I'm right there with you. There you go. <laughs> I just want to mention, we, we kind of get our first, if you, if you were one of the people that taped this and then went back and watched it after its first airing, we get the first glimpse of the alien alphabet on one of the billboards, and you wouldn't know at that point, but if you went back and looked to translate it, it said, uh, Tasty Human Burgers. Oh, did it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty funny. We also see a lot of uh, advertisements in there for um, Bachelor Chow, which is a reoccurring theme, <laughs> billboard and advertisement, which is actually like a, it's pretty, it's, one of the episodes Fry actually eats Bachelor Chow. It's a dog food bag type uh, food. <laughs> That is poured into a bowl or, or something, and you add water to it, like a gravy. It's it's pretty funny. 
So he's welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah, that was by Terry. Terry, who may come back later on in this series, right? He does. He does come appear a few more times. A couple yeah. times. We see Leela for the first time, uh, as well as the probulator. We get a couple of extra details as uh, Leela processes him. We see that uh, his name is Philip J. Fry. Uh, his age is 25 and his blood type is B. Hmm, I didn't see that. Okay, that's that's good. I guess what I from what I've read is that he was named uh, Philip after Phil Hartman, yep. who had been killed, I think, only maybe a year or two prior to this, and he was originally going to be their choice for the voice of Zap Brannigan. Yeah, yeah, I did hear that. And you could hear the the gentleman who did do the voice of Zap Brannigan, um, you could definitely hear where they want Phil Hartman to be in that role, just by the way he ended up doing the voice. It's very much a Phil Hartman type of voice. And that's uh, that's Billy West, too, I believe. Billy West, very talented. Yeah. Yep. Also Nickelodeon's Doug, and Ren and Stimpy, and many other characters. Very yes. uh, prolific and great voice actor. Yes. So anyway, Fry uh, finds out that he's uh, destined to be a delivery boy even in the future. And yes. he finds also that he has a living uh, relative, a great, 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 great nephew. Who is named after who? We know his name is Farnsworth, but who is that in, in relevance to history? Does anybody know? Hold on. Let me look it up. Ah, you don't Google it. <laughs> you have to know or not. I don't know. Philo, I think it's uh, Farnsworth, who was the inventor of the TV. Oh, okay. Yep. Very cool. Television set. A few more seconds and I could have told you that. Well. <laughs> very, very uh, dense show. Yes. In a good way. Yes. So Fry goes around to the uh, transport tubes. He's trying he's, to... He escapes custody. Yep. Yeah, and he's trying to process the world around him. And then he sees a man asking to be sent to where? JFK Junior Airport. And just to cut in, there's one nice little scene, too, that shows Fry's, uh, his, uh, kindness, I guess you could say, and his, maybe his, his, uh, first attraction towards Leela, when she could have been frozen, uh, in the tube when she fell into it by accident after chasing Fry. He, uh, just reset it so it's only for five minutes instead of a thousand years. Yeah, I would hate so. to be a maintenance worker for one of those, because if you screw up and hit the wrong button, you're not gonna see the light of day for another... 500 or so years. Especially the employees that apply cryogenics where they don't check and do, do proper uh, inventorying of their their clients. That's right. So. Or, or staff. That's right. Very easy to uh, to tamper with the controls, it seems. A couple other points if I could jump yeah, in please. before we jump on. There is a, um, a poster that really cracks me up every time I see it. I wish I could get a copy of it behind Leela's desk <laughs> that says shows a uh, very depressed-looking, uh, hard-hatted worker with his thumb up that says, uh, you got to oh, yeah. do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That just cracks me up. And Lily, I think you wanted to talk about Leo's keyboard. Oh, yes. Okay, so this is the future. This is a thousand years into the future from 1999. Her keyboard is still in the style of an old, clunky, pastel, putty-colored keyboard that you would have found in the 90s. <laughs> you know, just with a wireless antenna. Yeah, yeah. When nowadays we have slim style keyboards with chiclet keys that have wireless capabilities without an antenna. Yeah. So I found that to be kind of funny. Like yeah, I did too. That that was their perception of what technology in the future would look like. It had to look alien. And... But the screen she's looking on is floating in on the desk, and it, it looks holographic in, in nature. 
Yeah, why couldn't they so, have made a holographic I, keyboard? I, yeah, but still uh, concrete, tangible. You can, she can tilt it and turn it. Maybe, yeah, maybe they figure you see a lot of that through the series where there's some office equipment, even that is, you know, staplers and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Still, when she prints you know. out Fry's uh, <laughs> bi- biological information, it's on an old printer page printout. I don't even know what it's, it's called. It's a dot matrix, dot matrix printer, yeah. 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 Which were pretty much out of use by that time, anyway. Yeah, I think that was a in joke for 1999. It, you know, I thought Matrix was a 80s technology, yes. definitely. But maybe they saw the you know it was a better technology in the future for some reason. They know more than we know, I guess. Sure, I'm sure they could always write something into this into the story if they had to. Um, so as Sean alluded to earlier, uh, Fry sees a man in front of him ask to go to JFK Jr. Memorial Airport. That that was funny at the time because JFK Jr. was alive, and it was funny to have an airport named after him in memorial instead of his father because there was jfk airport uh unfortunately jfk jr died in a plane crash on july 16th 1999 which was less than four months after the air air date of this episode so that was uh uh, re-recorded in all subsequent airings including i believe the dvd releases and i'm not sure about netflix as well that is true yeah, it's for both. I checked it last night. Yeah, it's for both of them. It was changed to Radio yeah. City Mutant Hall. Radio City Mutant Hall, yeah. Wow. So Fry gets sucked through this long tube. We see a couple of little jokes and cameos. We have a... It's not quite Blinky from The Simpsons, the three-eyed fish, but it's... it's very de- close. Very close. Very much a nod to it. We get the uh, Circle Line New York uh, Harbor Cruises. We have a a ship that seemed to crash. We have uh, the skeleton of a captain hanging out of the, the glass, so something bad happened there. I believe, was Circle Line a Titanic? Was that the... I can't, or that was very similar to that, right? It was... Uh, no, that was Starline, I White believe. White Starline? Okay. Yeah, White yeah. Star. Now, Circle Line is still... Uh, they're still there. You can take uh, fast... High-speed uh, cruises around New York, and in fact, they were involved in some rescue missions too to help out. You remember uh, when Captain Sullenberger oh, Sully, made yes. the very safe water landing? They were, uh, I think, amongst the first responders to help out. So they're still very much active, just not in uh, this reality. Yeah, and they uh, also the tube goes through um, or across the Statue of Liberty, which changes a number of times in the series. Um, what the Statue of Liberty is doing. But in this case, it's holding the tube that uh, Fry travels through. Yes. A little uh, strange to design the transport tube that way, but would definitely be fun. Yeah, that's funny. So Fry then goes to... I'm not. I'm sorry if I'm going too fast. Let me know. No, no, it's fine. No, no. I'm just trying to push this along. Fry goes to the suicide booth, which he mistakes for a phone booth, which were a thing in 1999. And it ends up being a suicide booth. Yeah. And inventors right behind them. I want to go off on a tangent about this in particular. Please do. First of all, if Bender went into the suicide booth, choosing the slow and painless method, it really wouldn't have killed Bender. How are you going to saw a robot with a rotating blade or a little stabbing knife that twists at the end? I think on Bender's metal exterior, it just would have panged off or pinged off. Yeah, I'm not sure um, what Bender's motivation was in, in doing this, besides, you know, he was obviously depressed. Um, Why? Because he couldn't bend? I... I, I yeah, I, he might have just been <laughs> drunk, I'm assuming. Um, or sober, maybe, because, uh, you know, with, with Bender, it's more sober than anything else. Right. Um, 
But I, you know, I like Fry's whole expression when he goes into the suicide, or you know, he's waiting in the line, and there's a line for the suicide booth, which just cracks me up. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like four or five people in front of, of him. Two thousand and eight. And you see uh, yes. these flashes of light that um, happen in front of him, totally oblivious. Even when he gets into the suicide booth, yeah, and is trying to hits the button to start about fifteen times before Bender uh, takes over. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to say, great reveal into Bender's character as well, that uh, he tries to uh, go two-for-one with Fry for 25 (laughs) cents, and still tries to take his quarterback, tying it on a string as they did in many old cartoons. Tries (laughs) to rip off the suicide booth. (laughs) Um, Also, the fact that they're using, still using coin and paper-based currency this far in the future is funny, even though it it does talk, as we see in future episodes, that currency is robotic and waves. Yes. Or interactive. Has a personality of its own. Fun fact, before we move on um, to a uh, different talking point, just about the the booth. I have never actually seen a telephone booth in real life. Never seen one. Wow, wow, that's amazing. I know. I don't... Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think they were purchased... In 2008, when suicide booths became prevalent, I think they probably were repurposed telephone booths, most likely. Yeah, yeah, Um, definitely. (laughs) <laughs> from Pac Bell or from, you know. But yeah, and the uh, name of the suicide booth is um, Stop and Drop. Yes. <laughs> Since 2008, which is hilarious. And the fact that it thanks you for using it when you're obviously dead. Did Stop and Chop exist? Oh, Did very much stop- so. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, I don't know yeah. when that actually originated. Stop and, stop and Chop has been around since the 70s, or before, no, way before that. No, Stop and Shop, Long time. It, just last year, celebrated their 100th anniversary. They started in 1914. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah, it's true, yeah. But they are, um, they're regional, so I don't know how that joke played around the country. I think it's the rhyming of it is what, you know. Yeah. That's, because you know, whenever, whenever I go to Stop and Shop, I, I'm like, oh, I'm going to the Stop and Plop, but. No, uh, in the Northeast, I think it has more relevance for us. Yeah, <laughs> we'll never get them as a sponsor now. <laughs> well, whatever. and I like at the end of the the suicide um, routine, the knife comes out and stabs and twists yes. right yeah. where the heart would be. You know, I think it's pretty. Yeah, you are now dead. <laughs> the fact that Fry is able to survive that is pretty amazing. If you think about it, I mean, he just kind of crouches to one yeah. side of the booth. With Bender next to him or in back of him, so it's pretty amazing. If they're really going to make a suicide booth, they should go all the way and put in light heartbeat sensors to make sure the person inside is actually deceased. Well, for the discount price of 25 cents, I don't think they're going to go through that much. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's true. They must and be getting quite a pe- bit of business, you were assuming, you know. <laughs> People capitalize anything. That's true. <laughs> All right, so we find out here that Bender worked bending girders for suicide booths. <laughs> That's what depressed him into like, wanting to kill himself. Yeah, so kind of interesting. We also have the the phrase when um you know he meets uh Fry meets Bender for the first time. Bender's signature phrase: "Bite my shiny middle, you know what?" Um, <laughs> which he, which uh, is a funny line too, I think, when he says that. Um, Fry immediately replies, "It doesn't look that shiny." And he calls him a meatbag for the first time, which I think is, is pretty funny. Yes, we'll hear that many times, I think, in the course of the series. Yep. So we end up seeing Fry and Bender now at Ozorgnax's pub, which is the yep. future alien analog to the original Irish pub uh, in 1999, which was, what was the name of that? Do you remember? Oh, something. O'Leary. Oh, so- ah, I forget. So, um, Honestly. That's all right. 
here's the first uh, scene that we have of Bender drinking, but uh, in, he was drinking old Fortran malt liquor, <laughs> and you guys, you guys are computer savvy. You know what Fortran is? Yes. Uh, high loving. Well, you tell. It's a programming language invented yes. by IBM, I believe. Correct. Yes. Not well, no longer really used, but it's no, you know, relevant. And uh, the name of the pub was O'Harrison's. O'Harrison's in 1999. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I have in my notes here that Fortran was developed for IBM in the 1950s, and the latest language revision is supposed to happen this year. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Used or not, I guess. Yeah, I never I've never ever heard of anyone using Fortran. Yeah, I don't know what it's being used for. It's it's high level programming language, so it could be used for mainframes. And stuff. I really don't know. Just a note about Bender drinking is that he says that he says here that he doesn't need to drink, but that's later established that he does in fact that all robots need alcohol for their fuel cells, and that he's in a drunk like state if he's not drinking. Yeah, the opposite of a person. Yeah, that's pretty funny. He gets the uh, 5 o'clock shadow if he's not, if he's sober. Yeah, that's something that's always bothered me in the show. <laughs> rust. The 5 o'clock rust. Yeah. So here we see something also very interesting for the history of the series. Behind Fry here, there's a poster that has the alien language, five characters, and then a can of slurm. Hmm. And this uh, served as the Rosetta Stone for fans that wanted to try to decipher the language because we saw oh, really? yeah we saw a drink slurm advertisement earlier, and now we see this advertisement. The creators of the show were hoping that it would take a while for people to realize that those were the characters D R I N K. They actually found out uh, looking online that within hours, fans had already completely deciphered the alien language. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's actually have a, n- a number of versions of it. Uh, With the it... pilot episode, people had already jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah, it, it was yeah. just a yeah. um, it was a letter substitution. A is a certain symbol, B is a certain symbol, so they were able to figure it out. Yeah, it's twenty six characters. I mean, it's not too hard to play with a little fool of fortune and figure out what the words are. Well, I'm so. just surprised it amassed that dedicated of a following so quickly. People were quite bored before Facebook and everything in 1999. That's true. So more time on their hands to uh, do that sort of thing. I think this, too, it casts such a wide net fandom-wise where people that are interested in sci-fi and robots and spaceships and even, you know, people like me that were just interested in The Simpsons and animation. This was uh, actually the high... I'm not sure if this record still stands, but it was the highest-rated premiere in the history of Fox. I can't think of anything else that's been better than that. And maybe there was. Probably like Prison Break or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. Also, just a little note that we get here after um, Leela tracks them down at the pub and they flee. Uh, we hear that Leela's identification code is 1BDI. Yes, yeah, that's pretty A funny. reference to her 1BDI. 1BDI, yep. I thought that was pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> we got our first view of um, the two police officers, which I don't know their name. The, the partners, the, the robot. Oh, um, yeah, they use the, they make, make the Star Wars reference. With the lightsabers, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the things they use. Yeah, if, I don't know. They, I know they have names. I just don't know what they are. One is supposed to be an African American robot, and the other guy, I don't know what his name is, but. And they'll be reoccurring as well throughout the series. Yeah, they flee to the uh, head museum. Heads, uh, able to survive in jars. We find out much later was a technology uh, invented by Ron Popeil <laughs> <Yeah>. of uh, <laughs> infomercial fame. <laughs> 
Uh, but is he has passed away, correct? Or maybe not. I don't believe so at the time of this oh, recording. No. That's the other guy. The other guy, I think, has passed Billy away. Billy Mays. Yes, Billy Mays. That's it. And another nice little uh, reference that Bender says that it's it's free to go into the Head Museum on Tuesdays. And December 31st, twenty nine ninety nine. it will be a Tuesday. So they, they got that right. Well thought out. Well, I got a little rant about the Head Museums. <laughs> All right. Very short. Well, no, short no, than my rant about cryogenic chambers. But the head museum concept, we see some of the, the famous heads. There's a lot of in-jokes. Matt Groening is actually a head in the head museum during uh, these scenes that come up. It's David Duchovny, Jillian Anderson, a bunch of other stars. And, of course, the Hall of Presidents we see in there. Nixon is <laughs> prevalent. George Washington, Jefferson, Grover Cleveland. So my question is, if you assume that someone is dead and it would say that the technology was invented somewhere in the 21st century, correct? Is that what the mindset is? We would have to assume it was, it'd be sometime coming up in the near future for us. During his lifetime, during Ron Peel's lifetime, yeah. which would be into the 21st, mid-21st century. Sure. So some of those stars you could see would be eligible to have their heads preserved. Why they would do this is beyond me, besides wanting to you know, be recognized, or as Leonard Nimoy said, to, you know, preserve their wisdom for the for the ages. But how about the ones that had passed away many years previous to that, such as George Washington, for example? He's been dead for over 200 years, at, even in the mid-21st century. You can only assume that they somehow cloned George Washington, either let him live another lifetime and then preserved his head, or cloned him and then removed his head to put in a, a jar. And that's the case with all those presidents. Why? Why would they, besides preserving historical figures, it's quite disturbing concept if you really, really think about it. And how would they have their memories? I mean, you have to wonder what a night at the museum is like with <laughs> all of the maintenance staff gone. The conversations between all of these famous people, dead presidents, celebrities, you know, Dick Clark. Yeah, it pre-stroke. Pre-Dick Clark and pre-stroke Dick Clark, which is amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know. And, and that kind of brings up another question is we see Dick Clark later on. He has a job and everything. Is the uh, this head museum a, a free place for people to stay if they can't hold down a job? Is this like a, uh, a shelter for the uh, homeless celebrity heads? I always assumed it was just a... Um... There were exhibits. I don't think there was... I think it, there was no uh, free will with these heads anymore. Well, but then you see, you know, like you said, Dick Clark had a job. Um, Richard, Richard Nixon in future episodes became president of Earth later on in the series. So, obviously, he had no problem running for president. No shirt, no shoes, no body. <laughs> Walter Mondale. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I think it's probably just a place to dump them. I don't think um, they're getting paid for this in any way. Um, maybe for the prestige of it, you know, what kind of prestige it would be is beyond me, but, right. um, singing a jar all day. The funny scene there about the, the you know, the, after Leonard Nimoy goes through a speech about dignity and sharing his wisdom with the ages, <laughs> the person, the maintenance person comes in and, and, uh, pours like fish food flakes in this bowl. Yes. <laughs> it, that, that was my favorite part of the entire episode, I have to admit. That was pretty great. Where Nimoy's very excited and his head's going up like fish was very pretty good. So we continue on from there where the, the chase continues. 
Yes, I, I also just wanted to uh, to mention you, uh, some of the other heads we see. Johnny Carson, Gillian Anderson, and David Duchovny. Yep. Uh, even though I think we find out there's some connection between Calculon and David Duchovny later on in the... Yeah. Well, I believe during the honking episode, he reveals that he had been pretending to be David Duchovny. Um, Liz Taylor's there, Billy Corgan, Lucille Ball, Ed Begley Jr., Dennis Rodman, uh, Matt Groening, and Barbara Streisand, her, with the name Barbara misspelled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a nice little joke in the uh, Hall of Presidents there. Uh, Grover Cleveland appears twice. Yep. There's uh, two copies of his head. That's because he was the 22nd and 24th president. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah. You'll see Grover Cleveland uh, very clearly twice as a nod to that. So he, uh, he was cloned twice, possibly. So, uh, yeah, so that leads to a showdown. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon is freed from his, uh, from his head jar, and we see him attack Fry. Um, they don't seem to need the head fluid. It doesn't really seem to serve a purpose. Yeah, I think there's a, a future episode about the head fluid, and you know, I I think it's for long term they have to be in it to be preserved. But for short term stints like uh, Nixon did, we could jump out and you know bite Fry and chomp at him. They actually have a nice little chomping sound when <laughs> he goes after him, which is pretty funny. Um, and Nixon's always funny in any you know any reference. Um, the voice is perfect. I don't know if Billy West does that voice of Nixon or who does that. Oh yeah. That's that's uh, Billy does. West. I'm looking at the, the notes right now. Um, he does Nixon. Oh, just just to uh, go back to uh, the two cops that uh, now are here fighting uh, Leela in the Head Museum. Uh, yep. Earl, spelled U-R-L and pronounced Earl, is the robot, <laughs> and Smitty is the human. Smitty. Okay, yeah, I do, do remember hearing that. Your Earl's funny. All right. Nice little joke. Their their uh, night sticks are actually light sticks. And uh, they use them to beat people with, like, billy clubs. There's really no difference. And uh, the scene where they start beating Fry and Bender, and you know, Lila tries to get them to stop, and they say, you know, that's our job, we're, we're peace officers. Kind of relevant to our recent history. Um, I ain't touching that one. Um, so they're, they're stuck in the Hall of Criminals, which is kind of uh, interesting. Um, Bender and Fry barricade themselves in there. Uh, is this supposed to be a prison as well for dead criminals? They're brought back to life to be locked away again. It doesn't seem as though it's a real exhibit. Kind of an interesting. It's kind of a closet. I mean, it's outside access with the bars, so I don't know what the. Yeah, what is the point of the outside access? I. <laughs> what? What is it? Just to let the light in? What is... I don't know. Uh, the motif of a a prison cell. I don't. I think that's the whole idea behind it. Is it supposed to be? You know, they do a cheesy setup of uh, how prisoners were treated with the cell and everything, and the one light bulb hanging there. Yeah. Um, Which we find out later serves a little bit of a purpose for the story. They they try to escape. Fry wants Bender to bend the bars, and uh, Bender doesn't want to, He's or he's not programmed to, and then he his uh, antenna pops the light bulb, and he's shocked, and all of a sudden he's on Fry's side of doing things. Yep. And they, they escape, yep, to the alley. They go into the sewers, and Bender bends the grate, even though he didn't have to. That was hilarious. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. And then uh, 
people have pointed out, and you know, we're not here to nitpick, but there was a little continuity error where Bender bends the bars and they're removed, and then in the scene behind him, they're they're right back. But that tended to happen, especially with this being cell animation before they fully went to uh, digital. You would get yeah. mistakes like this. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, now the process is much more streamlined, so it probably wouldn't be as prevalent. But back then it was deadlines and doing these frames took a long time. So. And retakes and reshoots, especially with this animation house that they use being in South Korea, it was a, an expensive process. If you had a mistake that you wanted fixed, you better make sure it was a glaring mistake because you may not be able to fix everything like you wanted anyway. So so anyway, Fry and uh, Bender escape. Bender puts his arms back on and uh, Leela comes in after them. They, Which is a nice little nod for uh, what Fry says when Bender puts his arms back on, that he doesn't know how he did it. Bender's like, I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny. Kind of, you know, knowing that people want to catch up would catch up on that and say, hey, how can he put his arm back on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty funny. Yeah, they just immediately shut down everyone who's going to nitpick on that specific moment. Yes, exactly. At this point, the show goes into a commercial break, so why don't we just talk for a minute and uh, we'll uh, pay some bills and take a commercial break of our own. Hey, Billy. Huh? Billy, wake up. What, Skippy? Mom said we need to be rested for the dentistry fair tomorrow. I know, but my foot hurts and I'm afraid of the dark. Uh, Here, take this. Whoa, what is it? It's Lighten Up, the first FDA-pending joint pain-relieving cream that glows in the dark. The next morning. All right, right, who wants to run up here here and claim claim a free free copy copy of of Local local Anesthetic anesthetic Solutions for Molar Extraction? I do, I do. Go, Skippy, go. Somebody's going to be a dentist fast. That he doesn't have arthritis. Is his ankle glowing? Lighten Up, use as directed. Now responsible for loss of limb necrosis or temporary to permanent blindness. Okay, and we are back. We're back from commercial as well on the show, and we see uh, at this point Fry and Bender are looking uh, at the ruins of uh, old New York. Yeah. And uh, we see things like Rockefeller Center, where Fry's reminiscing about his ice skating date with Michelle, and it's now been replaced with this giant one-eyed squid monster. Very reminiscent of the uh, Star Wars New Hope monster, I think, in the... Uh... The garbage compactor. Yes, yes. Possibly. <laughs> we also see Empire State Building has been knocked down. And this kind of goes with my whole rant about the Applied Cryogenics Building. You know, it would be underground at this point if it was still in old New York. So, obviously, they move things around. But why? if you moved it, why would you put it on, uh, again, another skyscraper? It's beyond me. Well, so. again, it goes all to the suspension of disbelief, which we really have to take into account when you're dealing with a animated show... That's also a sci-fi show. <laughs> Very yes. true. Fry is confronted with Leela, and he's finally given up, and he's ready to accept his uh, fate, as it were, through this uh, career chip. But then we see that Leela comes to sympathize with Fry and ends up removing her uh, career chip, and she happens to mention that she's the only one-eyed alien uh, that she feels alone like he does. Of course, we find out later she's not an alien. She's actually a mutant, and there's many other creatures with one eye. Yes. Including the monster we just saw at Rockefeller Center. Possibly a cousin of hers. Possibly. The removal process and the insertion process for the, uh, the career chips is quite painful with that device. <laughs> Say she's a claw hammer to get the thing out of her hand. <laughs> and, you know, it was not she fun takes to it, it like a 
takes it like a pro, though, I guess. She does. <laughs> she must know the feeling. Well, we find out that Leela is a very tough character, probably the, the toughest and uh, most courageous of all of them. Oh, I also wanted to mention one thing that we missed is when uh, Fry and Bender escape into the sewer, we see our, uh, what's really, I guess, our third glimpse of the alien alphabet, and there's graffiti under the uh, billboard that says Smart Sausages. I don't want to know what that even is, but uh, <laughs> the graffiti can tr- be translated to Venusians Go Home. That's pretty good. And that was kind of in there to see if they knew what that meant, if they could translate that. And the creators of the show found out, yes, in fact, that was translated as well. Oh, and we missed, too, when uh, Bender Bender craps a brick in fear. Oh, my God. Oh, I yeah. I remember that. That's one of my favorite parts oh. of this episode also. I, I remember watching that and being like, is that internet meme relevant back in... <laughs> That's, I don't think that's the first, uh, only time that Brenda does that. Also, um, I think there's. So, n- n- I wonder if Futurama created the origin of where that meme comes from. Like you're so scared, you poop brick. I think it's or, been around for a while. Yeah. The the phrase itself, but the fact that he actually did it is uh, pretty funny. Yeah, I've I, um, I've heard it prior to that, but it's definitely the first time I've seen it. We also see with Bender, we learn for the first time um, that he has a quite a large body cavity that he could store stuff in. And there's a part where he took out some alcohol, and he stores booze in there and all sorts of stuff. Which is actually uh, another episode, too, where it shows an x-ray of Bender. And it just basically is like stick figure with gears. Yeah. And the, the shell outside, so his, uh, his body serves a lot of purposes throughout the series. Later, he holds the entire head jar of uh, Lucy Lou for an indeterminate amount of time as well. <laughs> yes, he does. Small children, I believe, at one point. Yes. <laughs> he keeps in his, his uh, head jar. Many things. Or is it his body, excuse me. Um, it's also used at one point as a still um, <laughs> in a future episode, which is pretty good. It's like the uh, magic bag of Felix the Cat, to go back to uh, very old animation. Which I believe is also another animation in one of the episodes too Felix the Cat. Yeah. Um so it's we find out that it's also December thirty first, uh twenty nine ninety nine. It's not quite a thousand years, but as Sean brought out, applied cryogenics doesn't seem to be a precise business anyway. So I can live with the fact that he didn't fully last there a thousand years. There's actually I saw a site, I can't recall where it was now, where they actually do the the numbers Talk about getting into detail about this, and they figured out it would have been, I believe, uh, further along than than that because of leap years and all sorts of other mathematical um, and calendar changes. The date would have been off to what it was, you know, after a thousand years anyway. So, kind of interesting. Hmm. We see here the cameo here. Oh yeah, the the ball dropping and Dick Clark's head is counting down. Obviously, they didn't know anything that was going to happen to Dick Clark, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I looked it up. So. He had passed away April 18th, 2012. But uh, at this time, at least in 1999, he was the still the host of New Year's Rockin' Eve. It's now, I believe, Ryan Seacrest. So it's nice to know that in the future, Dick Clark is able to come back and take his job. Yes. Uh, also, in the background, instead of Hi, Mom, we see someone holding a Hi, Mog sign. So we, here we get the first scene where Bender, Fry, and Leela knock on the door of Hubert Farnsworth. We see his first appearance. Uh, we see also a device that 
it's been mentioned by uh, one of the creators or directors that this machine that they use seemed the only uh, real use of it, it seems, is to find out if there's any relation between two people. <laughs> you put your finger in and it tells, and it light, lights up if there is. <laughs> That's pretty one good. light bulb. We see the Planet Express business, the spaceship. More interesting to the professor, however, is the different lengths of wire. They use build it. Wants to go into detail. That cracked me up. Bender also asking him for money, and you get the first. Oh my no! Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, the the police, of course, track them to this location. I'm sorry, it's actually this scene now where Bender craps the brick in fear. Yeah. Yep. So Fry immediately jumps into the Planet Express spaceship to flee, but uh, Leela, with her experience, becomes the captain, and that's something that will last for the entire series. So you could drive a stick. Yes, that's right. So. <laughs> so again, we see another countdown around the world. So let's see, I wrote this down. We have counting down Leela, then New New York, then the Great Pyramid, then Paris again. But now Paris is counting in English, which they claim was an in-joke saying that uh, French will be obsolete. They'll be speaking English in the year 3000. We see aliens drinking. We see Terry again at the cryo lab. Leonard Nimoy. Then Professor Farnsworth. Then Bender. And then Leela. And then Fry says blast off. And they're able to escape danger into the firework display. Then uh, Farnsworth is able to assign them career chips that uh, he happened to have lying around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and on the package, it uh, says, like, retrieved from the belly of some space monster. Contents of space wasp or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. stomach. <laughs> Where the previous crew met their fate. Well, there's actually an episode that refers to that down the line in one of the other seasons. Yeah. That incident that took the previous Planet Express crew and, and ship, honestly, to their, to their doom. Uh, A lot of details that will pay off in the future. Yes, yeah, a lot of a lot of things to build on this episode. And of course, you know, now uh, Fry is thrilled and ecstatic to be a delivery boy, um, even though it's the same exact job he hated before because he gets to go into space. <laughs> right. So technically, the, the the job chip was correct in estimating or determining what his future job would be. Whether or not he actually got the chip, he's still a delivery boy. Yeah. So anyway, that brings us to the. Very end of the show. Did you guys have any final notes? Anything else you wanted to uh, bring out? Well, I wanted to go around and ask everyone what their favorite scene was or favorite instance was from this episode. I have to think about that for a second if someone else wants to, to go first. Sure. You know, what What really blew me away, I think I mentioned this uh, earlier, was the, the, the whole title sequence. The theme song is kind of offbeat and strange. And mm -hmm. just the, the full detail is something that you definitely didn't see, especially at a time when everything was uh, 2D animation, cell animation. You didn't get too much of that 3D effect. Only a couple of times in The Simpsons and, uh, you know, Toy Story and those kind of shows, Pixar movies and other shows on TV that were in um, animated in 3D. You really didn't get that, even in those, you really didn't get that 2D look out of a 3D rendering. And... Just the full detail of that show was just amazing. I remember um, pausing it and looking at uh, looking at it frame by frame. Unbelievable detail. Yeah, definitely. They, they put a lot in the backgrounds, and really, the, it, it was very well written. 
um, as we mentioned before, just the details that went into everything that they did not only in this episode, but in the future episodes also. This is my perspective coming from a, a different generation that did grow up with the 3D animation. It's still very impressive to me and will always be hilarious in a show that I want to watch. But as far as comedic aspects, since I guess I can't really appreciate as well as both of you can stylistically, I loved the Bender pooping a brick. That, <laughs> that, that or Leonard Nimoy being a goldfish. That has to be a bobblehead somewhere. Yeah. If not, anyone listening... We can make some money off of this novel idea. It's funny because um, about the whole other Nimoy thing, just a little side point. I think that there's a little bit of uh, continuity. I can't say continuity. Word, I say the word continuity. Thank you very much. <laughs> Issues with this because uh, there was a few points in the not so much this episode, but a couple episodes in the future where uh, Fry mentioned Star Trek. And it's really shown in the uh, a few seasons down the road that Star Trek has actually been banned. Even the mention of it is punishable by imprisonment or something. So when he mentions Star, uh, Star Trek, or you know, it's told Spock to do or <laughs> Nimoy, or Nimoy to do the the thing with his hand, <laughs> and he doesn't do it anymore. So I kind of you have to watch out for those small things. But sometimes they don't quite get things quite right continuity wise. And that's well, um, that's the same too if, with many pilots as well. You know, it's. There's a lot of things uh, set up. Sometimes characters change. There's a lot of different things from first episodes. I, I I cut them a lot of slack. So my favorite part, my favorite scene in this episode, I think has to start with Fry when he leaves the applied cryogenics building and up to when he meets Bender. Just a look of wonder on his face. Some gems in there, too. Some of the pedestrians are walking by. Cracked me up with the uh, bars, the black bars over there. Naughty bits, which cracked me up as a future fashion. And, you know, the whole Bender-Fry interaction cracks me up. The first look at Bender and Fry's awe at him and Bender not caring less. One thing we forgot to mention, when Fry comes off the tube, everyone else just casually kind of comes out of the tube and walks away. And he comes flying out against oh, yeah. the wall, Yes, and uh, which is a recurring theme for Fry, not being able to master the tube exit. Kind of like how you would see somebody, uh, a hick coming to the city in the 50s or the 60s or the 80s and not being able to exit the subway or whatever. Even the guy there says, ah, oh, tourist, you know. Another funny scene is with um, Fry and Bender in the bar where he wants to be friends with Bender. And Bender makes a, a comment and then they, he says, he, uh, if anybody asks, he's just a bugger, which cracks me up. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that whole interaction, I think, is my favorite part of the episode. Not my favorite episode in the series, but I mean, for a pilot, it was it was good for what it was, and it just got gets better for me from my here on in. Definitely an episode that still holds up. I would say it, it still looks like a part of the whole series. Yeah, definitely. Just a couple of notes before we end. There's a from the original script. There was a couple of things changed. Fry was originally supposed to be bought by Farnsworth at auction for spare parts which is kind of a uh, gruesome entry point to the series. There was originally a, a Statue of Liberty joke where Fry was going to be processed at Ellis <laughs> Island. The Statue of Liberty at Liberty Island, he was going to fall out of the head of uh, Lady Liberty, but uh, she was going to come to life, reach out, and catch him. Then there was thoughts that Fry could maybe be a night watchman uh, at the cryo lab. Uh, another thing they were contemplating was maybe making him the captain of the ship, but 
it doesn't really fit with his incompetence and the destiny of his career, so it made more sense to have Leela be the, the ship captain. So Yeah, uh, that would have actually been pretty funny with the whole spare parts thing. Uh, <laughs> I would have liked that, that reference. Definitely st- something they explore later on. Yeah, Farnsworth is always talking about how he has them around for blood and stuff like that, which is kind of yes, um, <laughs> and for spare parts. So yeah, that's I would prefer the entry point like that myself. All right, well I think that'll do it for us. We thank everybody for their patience in uh, listening to this pilot episode of our own. And if you have any thoughts or questions or suggestions, you can email us at uh, what is our <laughs> Email account? I just made it three hours ago and I forgot. It's um, it, it's uh, hittingplayshow at gmail.com. Yes. H-I-T-T-I-N-G. Are we, are we also on Twitter? Uh, if you, we are on Twitter as well. Hitting Play. We actually got that on Twitter. Hitting Play. At Hitting Play on capital Twitter. Capital H, capital T. So follow us. That's right. Yes. Comments are uh, welcome, negative or positive. And that'll do it. Okay. Good evening. <laughs> Good night. Yeah, Until we, next we time. We need an outro. <laughs> yes, this is the outro right here. Good night, everyone.